You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Well, good morning and happy Easter. It's so good to be back here with you all. You know, when we think about the church calendar and the, the life of the church, you know, Christmas and Easter are two of the really big days, aren't they? You know, at Christmas, we remember as Christians the coming of Jesus. It reminds us of who Jesus is, God with us, and why he came to save us from our sins. Easter, though, is a little bit different. At Easter, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus did by giving his life for us on the cross, and the result, he conquered sin and death, as we were just singing about, when he rose from the grave. So today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, A little bit of background before Andrew comes up to read. Uh, Corinth was a major trade city, okay? So a place, big city, big town. uh, But as with a lot of big cities, a lot of problems. Uh, They had a lot of sexual immorality. There was all kinds of religious diversity and plurality. People had all kinds of different thoughts and ideas. There's a lot of corruption as well. So it's just like Washington, all right, so Corinth is like Washington, right? Because really, when you go around the world, there's nothing new under the sun. You go to city after city, we all have the same problems because we all have the same problem in our hearts. And that doesn't uh, get relegated to just one place in the world. No, it's, it's a worldwide problem. Paul, the apostle, had actually planted this church, and we know about that in Acts 18. And now he's writing to them because they were struggling as a young church. They had some problems within the church that they were trying to sort out. They had problems about understanding spiritual gifts in the church and how to use them and what's the best way to serve the church by using our spiritual gifts. And they had questions about marriage and about sexuality and purity. They had questions about sacrificing food to idols and is that okay and not okay and how are we going to love one another as a church? But then towards the end of the letter, there was another big problem that Paul needed to address, and that is some questions that they had about the resurrection of Jesus. And so Andrew's going to come and read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that your word would speak to us today. For those of us who are in Christ, I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith by being reminded about the glorious resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are struggling in their faith, Lord, that they would be encouraged today to be reminded of who they are in Christ and most importantly, what Christ has done for them that they could not do for themselves. And Father, for those who are here today that don't know your son, Jesus, I pray that the words that are preached today would be words that they will ponder and think about words that will penetrate their hearts and help them understand their need for a Savior, but also your gracious disposition to provide a Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, for all of us, as we hear your word preached today, may we all be edified. May we all give you glory and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Christianity really stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can disprove the resurrection, then Christianity crumbles, doesn't it? There's no reason to be here today. 
But if it's true, then salvation and eternal life are available for everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ, who will believe in the good news. Back in verse 12, we see how this story is unfolding. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, okay, which is what they had been preaching, he says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so it's a really important question. If you don't believe it, then there's not much use in following Christianity. But if you do believe it, well, it's part and parcel of the great gospel story, the gospel of hope that we have available to us through Christ. How can some of you say? Paul, I think to a degree, was a little bit surprised. He's like, I planted this church. I preached the gospel to you. And yet, like so many of us, we can sometimes hear the good news, but we have a lot of questions too. And so Paul's not coming at them in an angry or unkind way. No, but he's coming to serve them because he loves them. And he wants to remind them of the truth. This is a big problem because, as I said, if there is no resurrection, they've taken the heart out of Christianity. And really then Christianity becomes an empty religion, really without any power, without any hope. So Paul, in the message here today, he's going to expose the logical implications at first of what happens if you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then we're going to conclude with the hope of the resurrection. So just two points today. First, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what do we lose? What happens if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Seven implications. First, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 13. It says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, no resurrection means Christ is still dead. Jesus didn't come out of the tomb. He's still buried somewhere here on earth. He didn't ascend to the right hand of God. He's not ruling and reigning from on high. And sad to say, he won't be coming back. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, those are some serious consequences. Secondly, if Christ is dead, then all this preaching that Paul has done is in vain. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. The word translated in vain literally means empty. So Paul's saying, everything I've been talking to you, everything that we built this church around, it was really empty. There was really nothing to it. It all just vaporizes. There's nothing there. And he's telling them that because there's nothing there, they have no value to their lives. Their lives are just purposeless. There is no God. There is no Jesus. There is no ruling and reigning king. No, it's just every man for himself. Their preaching is in vain. But Paul believed what he preached. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, The world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so Paul knows that there's, in God's economy, this wonderful connection between preaching and believing. Later on in Romans, we find out how are people going to believe unless somebody preaches to them. And the way God designed it, the words of Scripture and the preaching of the gospel are essential to laying hold of the faith that will bring salvation. And yet, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ is still dead, then everything that Paul has been preaching is empty. 
You see, Paul knows that it takes faith to believe the good news about Jesus. It can be hard to believe. It's a, it's a big story that you have to get your arms around. Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus born from a virgin, living a perfect life, conducting miracles. He died on a cross, but they say his death was for us and for our sins. He substituted himself for us. Why would Jesus die for me? That he was resurrected, came back from the dead. Now he's ascended and seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over the earth. And not only that, but with a promise that one day he's going to come back again and make all things new. I mean, the gospel's a big story. It's a big ask to get your arms around it. And yet Paul knows that it's true. And Paul knows that all the pieces have to be linked together. You can't take out just the one part or a couple parts that you don't like and hope that it all works. No, the gospel story in all of its grandeur has to tie together. Why? Because the gospel story is God's plan of salvation for us. We don't get to tell God what is included and what's not included. No, God is the creator of everything, and it's God who has made a way for us to be saved through Christ. And through the good news, this is what he lays out. And the resurrection is one of the key links in the chain. Because in the resurrection, God declares that what Jesus did in dying on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. Sins that you and I couldn't pay for. We don't have enough goodness in us to be able to pay for those sins. So he goes on. The rest of verse 14, he says, your faith is in vain. So not only is Paul's preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. My faith is in vain. You take out the resurrection of Jesus, you break the chain, and there's nothing left on which to rest our faith only a, a dead corpse, a Jewish carpenter who died and claimed a lot of great stuff, but nothing really happened. You see, Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But if he's dead, it doesn't really amount to anything, does it? The gospel without the resurrection is not good news. It's actually quite bad news. And it's a bad joke because we've been believing this empty lie. The gospel then has no power to change our lives and to do really anything in our lives except to deceive us. We believe the big lie. This is the argumentation that Paul is making to those Corinthians when they doubt the resurrection. Fourth, it says that Paul is basically misrepresenting God. Verse 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And this means that the apostles really are false witnesses to God. And so is everyone else who proclaims the gospel. The apostle Peter was lying to everyone in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Paul was a liar in Athens because he preached about Jesus. And yet you look at Paul's life and you say, hmm, what's the connection here? You see, Paul sacrificed a lot in order, to, in order to preach this gospel. He lived a life of sacrifice, of pain, and of suffering, and not of an inconsequential kind. In his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verses 24 and 28, 
Listen to the effect on preaching the gospel had on Paul's life. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Why would Paul misrepresent God and be treated this way? You see, Paul believed something that they were struggling with. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And that belief was so strong and so powerful that he was willing to endure all of this for the sake of the lost and for the sake of the church. Without the resurrection, those who proclaim the good news of Jesus are liars and misrepresenting God. Paul, in this instance, would be a fool. Who would live that way? Why would you live that way if what you're teaching and what you're preaching is not true? But the apostles and Paul were witnesses to the resurrection, and this is what they proclaimed. And thankfully, this is what they believed and preached. You know, there's a quote that says, men may die for a conviction, but not for a concoction. And think about that. What would you die for? What truth is so important, so valuable in your life that you would give up anything in order to maintain the validity of that truth? For Paul, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, ruling and reigning, who will one day come back to make all things new. Fifth argument. The news gets even worse. It says you are still in your sins. That's bad news for us. Verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, your faith being futile means it's really of no worth. It doesn't gain you anything. And you hear that phrase, still in your sins, you might sit there and say, well, I don't really know what that means. And that's legitimate. I, I didn't really understand what sin was until my mid-20s. I had heard about it, but I didn't really understand what it mean to be dead in my sins or still in my sins. Well, you have to start with what sin actually means. Sin is our opposition to God. It's in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. It's the things that we do in our lives to declare to God that you are not over me. You are not in charge of me. You are not ruling over me. You are not sovereign. I am. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I live life on my terms. Don't tell me what to do. Each and every one of us has that lingering thought in our hearts. We all want to be God. We all want life to be played out on our terms. Just think about the last fight or quarrel that you had with a friend or with a spouse or with one of your children. You see, we want things and we're willing to fight to get them because we think we deserve it or we think we're owed it. And so sin separates us from God. It started in the Garden of Eden. It's the story of Adam and Eve, isn't it? 
God places him in this beautiful garden and just says, follow me. He gives them one instruction in terms of something not to do, and that's the one thing they couldn't help themselves from doing. It's sort of the keep off the grass sign, you know? Once you see it, what do you immediately want to do? You want to walk across the grass. Well, that's the same heart that's in each of us. When we tell God we don't need him, when we want to live life our own way, it's called sin. And sometimes we do it by what we do, by commission, the sins that we commit. Sometimes it's by the things that we don't do, the good things that we choose not to do, like when we withhold love from other people or when we choose to do things for ourselves and neglect the needs of others. You see, each of us separates ourselves from God when we lie, when we get angry, when we steal, when we do drugs, when we get drunk, when we watch porn, when we get jealous. And the problem is, each and every one of us, because of these sins, it creates this distance between us and a holy God. You see, the holy, perfect, righteous God who created the heavens and the earth, who created the garden in all its perfections, he can't live with sin. Sin is antithetical to who he is. He's God and he's holy and he's perfect in righteousness. And yet we are corrupt in our sinfulness. And it's not just our own sinful lives, but when you think about the world around us, you go, well, the world is full of sin, isn't it? And all you have to do is just watch the news or read the paper or scroll on your phone and look at the news. And all you see is all this destruction, violence, war, racism, unkindness, pettiness, greed, jealousy. My question is, and a question that we all have to ask ourselves, where does all that badness come from? Are we innately good people who sometimes make mistakes? Or are we fundamentally flawed and it's a miracle that we do anything good? I think it's the latter. We're made in God's image, but that image has been tarnished because of our sin and we struggle and we fight to do the right things. What comes naturally to us, our natural human nature, is actually to do the things God doesn't want us to do. Instead of living for God, we live for ourselves. It's, it's no surprise where the great commandment is what? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor how? As yourself. What's presupposed there? Oh, we know how to love ourselves, right? So sin is pervasive. Sin's everywhere. Every nation, every country, every tribe, every people has to deal with the problem of sin. But the problem is, for all of us, how are we going to get right with God? These sins that we commit against God are offensive to God. We become his enemies. We're not just, oh, well, God's a good guy. I think I'll just sort of hang out with him sometimes. No, if we really stop and think about it, we become God's enemies. We become people who say, I don't want you in my life. We rebel against God. And the problem is, that rebellion deserves a response from God. That is... That is the judgment that God is going to give to us that's a righteous judgment. It says, if you want to live apart from me, then you will live apart from me. If you want to make this choice, you do go your own way. And yet God, in his mercy and in his kindness, he made a way for us to be able to be right with him 
not based on anything that we would do through our good works because they would never be sufficient. But he decided that there would be a way that we could be right with him through the work of another, one who was holy, one who was perfect in everything he did, one who always obeyed the Father, one who perfectly lived his life so that we could have his righteousness. And not only that, but this perfect one would also die and pay the penalty for the sins of the people who did sin against God, but who believed in him. He would pay the price that they could not pay on their own. That's why the cross is so significant. Because when Jesus hung there on the cross, he's saying, I pay this for you, for me. We owe a huge debt to a holy God, but we cannot pay it on our own. Sixth, the dead Christians have perished, and there's no coming back, and there's no hope of eternal life. Verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It means that every Christian funeral is based on lies. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me will never die, he's lying. It's not true if you believe that Christ was not raised from the dead. Without a resurrection, you will not see God and you will not have any hope of eternal life. Death remains our enemy and we're doomed. Finally, number seven, Christians are pitiful people. They're just just pitiful people. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And why do you think he says that? Well, because the life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice. We lay down our lives just as Christ laid down his life for us. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us. And so living in this life as a Christian means, yeah, you don't get to have all the fun that everybody else gets to have. You don't get to just go live as the captain of your own ship. You don't get to make all the rules. No, you actually consider the interests of others above your own. You lay down your life for your friends. You're more concerned about giving than about receiving. It's a change of orientation. It's a change of life that's all modeled on what Christ has done for us. And so we are to be pitied if we, if we believe all this stuff, but then Christ didn't really rise from the grave. Well, then why did I live this life of all this sacrifice? Why didn't I just eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow I die. We're pitiful people. Our hope is dashed. The Christian mindset is just really wishful thinking. Our transformation and our spiritual experience in this life, actually, it's all make-believe. So I could stop here and say, Happy Easter. It's pretty sad, isn't it? But it's a compelling argument that he makes. He's explaining to them everything that is opposite to what they've experienced. We learn in Corinthians that these were people who had really messed up lives, lives like mine and like yours. And yet in coming to faith in Christ, they experienced the transforming effect of the gospel. Those who were once enemies of God became his friends. Those who were once outcast and not included were welcomed into the family of God. Those who were beset with sins now have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, enabling them to say yes to God and yes to righteousness. Those who once had no ability not to sin now through the work of the Spirit can say yes to God 
and amen to his promises and live with a hope that is inside of us. So what is Paul doing? He's helping them see how wrong it is to believe that Jesus did not rise from the grave. These people knew they were no longer in their sins, but they knew for sure that they were saved because their lives had been transformed by the gospel. You see, faith in Christ and the transforming of the Holy Spirit, transforming work of the Holy Spirit, changes us on the inside to a sense that we know that we know. As I said before, Christianity stands or falls on the claim of Christ's resurrection. So the second point is this, and this will be shorter. If Jesus rose from the dead, what do we gain? 1 Corinthians 15.20 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what does it mean in verse 20? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Well, can't you just see the sigh of relief when they got to that part of the letter? So he's challenging them to think critically about what it means to believe in the resurrection. He explains to them, look, if it's not true, this is bad news. And yet he now heralds, it is true. You know this and you believe this. And how could they believe it? Because this is what was promised by Jesus and promised in Scripture. Earlier in chapter 15, he says that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's referring back to God's plan to raise his son from the dead so that we could have the hope of the resurrection and live in the good of this. You see, this letter was written 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, give or take. And there were many eyewitnesses to this resurrection. He says that then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he's appealing to the experience that he had in believing in Jesus Christ. And what does this mean when he says Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Well, it's like if you looked at an apple tree and you pick out the first big red delicious apple, but then you realize there are bushels and bushels more to come. Jesus is that first red delicious apple. He's the first fruit. And all of us who believe in him, we're the bushels and bushels of all the other good fruit that follows behind. Through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sins. What does that mean, atone? Atone means at one. He makes us right with God even though we were sinners. Death is defeated, and the new creation begins. You see, paradise was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. Paradise is regained by Jesus when he died and rose again. Jesus, it says in the Bible, is the second Adam. He did what Adam couldn't do, and he did it for you and me, so that in putting our faith and trust in Christ, we're not saved by our works, We're saved by the one who did the work for us. We're saved by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. One day, Jesus will come again, and he will make all things new. And when someone puts their faith in the resurrected Jesus, they become a new creation. Sins forgiven, adopted into God's family, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the gospel message is a message of hope for this life and for the next. This is the good news of Easter. 
This is why we sing the songs that we've been singing today, because we're being reminded of the hope that we have that Jesus truly has risen from the dead. As I mentioned earlier, when I heard this growing up, this didn't make any sense to me. I grew up in a somewhat religious home, but by the time I got to middle school, I sort of ditched going to church, and I, I didn't really want anything to do with it. And that lasted through middle school and high school and college and even after college. I thought, you know, I think I've got this figured out. I viewed the Christians in my life as weak people who just sort of needed a crutch because I didn't really think that the gospel had any power in my life until my dad got saved. My dad didn't get saved until he was in his 60s. And he had lived a pretty hard life and he had made a lot of mistakes my parents were separated several times as we were growing up. There were eight kids in our family. My father had lost his first wife after the first four kids, and he married my mom, and they had four more kids. So we had this blended family, and, you know, it was just filled with chaos and anger and fighting. My dad was an angry guy, angry at what he thought, you know, was a bad deal in life. He was raised in an orphanage during the Depression. He ran away when he was 14. He lost his first wife, who he really loved, and then he's got all these kids, and we weren't really the nicest kids. We sort of had problems. But it was a hard life. When I was a senior in college, I started to get these letters from my dad. I didn't even live at home my junior year of college. I lived at my girlfriend's house because my dad and I fought so much all the time. I just said, I can't live here anymore. My senior year of college in the fall, I went to JMU, um, I started getting letters from my dad. And the letters were perplexing to me because he started to say things like, I'm really sorry for how I treated you. He told me that he loved me, and I don't really recall ever hearing that growing up as a child. I knew something really different was happening with my dad, but I didn't know exactly what. I was pretty encouraged by it because he'd send me some money too. So I was like, hey, well, this is good. I like this. But it wasn't just a one-time thing. I still have a stack of letters that high. Because he kept writing me. He wanted to restore a relationship with me. And I didn't make it easy. Once I realized that I might get more out of this if I sort of withhold love, uh, I was playing the game. But he was persistent because God had done something in his life. You see, my father, in his 60s, put his faith and trust in Jesus. And right before my eyes, I saw somebody's life change, a life that I never thought would change. I never thought we would be restored. I never thought we would have a good relationship. And not only that, but the more I saw the change that was happening in his life, guess what happened? Well, it was like a mirror reflecting back onto my life, and I started to realize all the places where I needed to change. Towards the end of his life, after I had, several years later, given my life to the Lord, my dad actually became one of my best friends. He died in a nursing home. We had to bathe him and clothe him and take care of him. And I can't think of any higher privilege. And yet, if you knew our backstory, you would say, how can this be? How can this be? How can utterly destroyed lives be restored to such glory and grace and love and kindness and mercy? Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's true. And Jesus rose from the dead. There is power in the gospel. 
power to save, power to transform, power to redeem every one of us, no matter how far you've strayed. And when I got to that point when I was 25 years old, I had just paid for one of my girlfriends to have an abortion, and I realized in that moment that I wasn't the good guy that I thought I was. But where do you go when you're not sure how to receive forgiveness for committing murder? What do you do? I was distraught. Except I started to remember that my dad had been inviting me to this Bible study, and I was going to it sometimes during the week. And I heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And so not only did I hear the good news, but I saw the good news being lived out and transformed lives. And guess what? In my misery and in my distress, my sin was great, but his mercy was more. And he forgave me and welcomed me into his family and enabled my dad and I and so many others to be reconciled in a way that is completely unexplainable by the ways of the world, but is easily explainable by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, our risen Savior. When we look back at Paul's argument of all those things of what happens if Christ isn't alive, well, there is a resurrection. Christ is alive. He's not dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he will come again in glory. And if Jesus is alive, the gospel preaching is life-giving. These are the words of eternal life, and I encourage you to heed them, respond to them. If Jesus is alive, our faith is valid and we have hope. Those who preach from God's word are accurately representing God. If Jesus is alive, those who believe in him are no longer dead in your sins. You've been made alive in Christ. And if Jesus is alive... All those who've died in him, they've not perished. They're with their Lord and Savior. And friends, because Jesus is alive, we who have put our faith and trust in him, we have hope, don't we? Amen? So at Easter, we are reminded that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And for the guests here today, thanks for coming to be here with family and with friends. It's good to see some unfamiliar faces here today and you know Easter is such a good time to be together as family and for those of you who are not followers of Christ I just want to encourage you just consider these words of what is it about Jesus and whether or not he died and rose again because if you can get your arms around that if that really can make sense to you well then I think you're going to find a hope and a peace for your life that's missing right now and for those of us who are in Christ May the truth of the resurrection solidify our faith. And may it give us courage and strength to run the race that is set before us, denying ourselves, enduring hardship, and living for the praise of his glory. Friends, Jesus is alive and well. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this Easter Sunday. Thank you that we can talk about the hope of eternal life in Christ. Thank you for our union with Christ through faith and repentance. Thank you, Lord, that when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we know that we are now new creations. And I pray that we would live in the good of that. And I pray that this gospel message would not just be proclaimed here in this place, but it would be a message that radiates from this place. Lord, help us to be faithful messengers of the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.